You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We're here to tell you about the other side of the coin. You're listening to Cornfield Theology. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here, pastor of Redemption Hill Church, located in the Des Moines metro. Thanks for tuning in to another podcast. Uh, With me is, once again, Logan Kane. Yep, it's your boy. What's up, man? Uh, Not much. I'm actually now looking at your outfit. I'm getting some mixed messages. What do you mean? Well, you have an Iowa Hawkeyes hat. Of course. And a St. John's SJU shirt. Yeah, it's I got a second master's there, man. No, it's just, it's two different colleges. And then I got my my Star Wars shirt underneath my coat here nerd yeah i'm a star wars i like star wars a lot so so people so i've told people and they've told me back well i'm grateful uh, we're back with another podcast uh this is part two of uh i guess a two-part podcast that we're doing on calvinism so if you're tuning in for the first time and you're like okay what's part two what's part one right right go back and listen to um basically an hour-long conversation on calvinism and yep. why we are calvinists um right given the scriptural uh yeah. reasonings and what we what we did over and over, just go back to scripture, mm-hmm. again and again and again, and try to show and explain. Um, mm-hmm. This is where we get our theologies, where it comes from. Uh, but we're also very well aware that not everyone agrees with us. So there's a, kind of like a spectrum, right? You got Calvinism um, on one end, and then there's this other term, Arminianism, on the other end. And then within those two ends, you have people who may disagree on particular points. Maybe you know we talked about in our last podcast. You know, some people are like four point Calvinists, right? Mm-hmm. Or they say they are. Which is a little confusing to me, but the, the issue, um, at the point with that is that a lot of people just can't get around limited atonement. So that's where in the middle between Armenianism and Calvinism, mm-hmm. there's some there's some debate. And so we wanted to defend why we are Calvinists, and in particular, um, at our local church, there's people who've been coming who, um, you know, they weren't a part of the initial church plant. Um, so they're just like you know, thinking and asking good questions, great questions about what we believe and what's our theological convictions. We are confessional as well, and baked into our confession is Reformed theology, and in, even more specifically, um, Calvinism, Cal, uh, uh, soteriology, and we talk right. about Calvinism. That, so. this, that distinction that Calvinism is a part of Reformed theology, but isn't right. all of Reformed theology. It's very specific. Yep, and so we want to be really respectful to those who disagree with us. Um, these don't need to be debates where there's conflict. Uh, we want to think well but also listen well to others. And I think, you know, I think as though uh, you can testify to this, Logan, knowing your past, you know, when I first became a Christian, the Lord saved me, you know, I started reading the Bible and all of a sudden I got these reformed principles, these Calvinistic principles. And you're kind of like the kid who lives in the basement with your parents with a rock in your shoe. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you're just calling out all the quote heresy all around you, you know? Yeah, or it's like being that that keyboard warrior where you're just trying to pick right. fights on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, so you kind of went through that as well. We call it cage stage Calvinism. Yep. And then you kind of grow up and you realize, oh, wait, we got these fruits of the Spirit. They're yeah. supposed to... I'm supposed to be, like, I believe in the doctrines of grace, and I think I'm supposed to I'm supposed to have grace, grace. Yeah, apparently. Right. Oh, whoopsies. So you grow up and you realize, wait, people don't always agree with you, and how do we, how do we live graciously? Mm-hmm. How do we embody and live like Christ? And um, we want to do that in this podcast and then in our day-to-day conversations with people regarding theology, and especially whether it's at our local church or someone who goes to a different church, whatever else have you. So, Logan, any more opening thoughts before we kind of move on? Nah, I want to dive in. You want to dive a, in? There's a lot again, so. Yeah, there is a lot. We might be here for a while, but hopefully it's for your benefit and yeah. uh, for your good and help you think well about Calvinism. Mm-hmm. In addition to the objections to Calvinism, which is the topic of this particular podcast, as as individuals who've been trained, we've gone through seminary, uh, we've engaged in the church for years, we obviously hear the objections, and sometimes they're good objections, and they're worthy of taking on and listening. Mm-hmm. And so we want to we wanna look at that today. So with that said, uh, I think an important um, comment on the outset is that we have to be, when we read the Bible, we have to be comfortable with paradoxes. Okay. Um, too often we, we look at something as like, it's black, it's white, and there's no reconciling the two. Uh, a paradox would just kind of blow that out and say, no, um, there's more going on. Um, 
paradox, according to Merriam-Webster, says something such as a situation that is made up of two opposite things that seem impossible, but is actually true or possible. And so an example of this would be like, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Right. Right. But then what do you do with free will? Does that mean you're like a puppet and God's just got the strings and you just kind of, in his sovereignty, you have no control. You're not accountable uh, for your decisions, yada, yada, yada. And the answer is no. No, absolutely not. Yeah, you are accountable. Um, There is, you have volition to, to act. And, you know, here's the example that comes to my mind. Unfortunately, Logan, like I have the freedom to punch you in the face. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's a punchable face. What can I you say? You know, and God is still sovereign. Yeah. And so that you got to be comfortable with paradoxes. And I think when you talk, begin to talk about objections to Calvinism, that one comes, comes to mind right away. Mm-hmm. It's like, how are these two reconcilable? Well, when we look at scripture, they clearly are. Yeah. And if you want to like a quick example of that, I go to Genesis 50 where it talks about when uh, I always forget his name. Is it? Joseph with the many coat of colors. Oh yeah, it was Joseph. Yeah, so like he's he's the second in command of all of Egypt, okay, and his brothers are groveling towards him, asking for mercy because they sold him into slavery, and he went through a life of just pain and suffering and temptation. And what does he say? He says, "What you intended for evil, God meant for good. God intended for good. It's the same. It yeah. that that action." That same action, there was God's intention for that action where he sovereignly decreed that it would happen. And there's the brother's intention for those actions. They're still held responsible for their own intentions and their desires and their actions, Mm -hmm. even though God had ordained it to happen. We see this dynamic all throughout scripture, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just an isolated passage. We're going through the book of Esther right now. And it's the same thing. We see God's providence at work. He's working out his plan of redemption. Mm -hmm. And yet we have people... Um, you know, the people of God. And then we have, you know, what we would say in the New Testament Gentiles, uh, King Asuerus and Haman, who are evil, making wicked decisions, right? They're still accountable. Uh, but God is still providentially at work. His will is coming about. And so he uses the wickedness of men and women to bring about his good purposes. Mm-hmm. And so God is sovereign over all things. And so that parad- we have to be comfortable with paradoxes. We just You can't really have a discussion about um, Calvinism and Arminianism unless we kind of reconcile that in our own head, what, whatever side of the debate you're on. Right. So paradoxes. And, and even important. if you're not a Calvinist, like there's going to be points where something will seem to be contradictory, but it's, it, they do actually reconcile. Yeah. We just might not currently understand it. And I think another principle for us is before we delve into maybe the more controversial stuff or, or you know, the uh, nuts and bolts of the debate, mm. Christians need to be comfortable with mystery. Yeah. I mean, awe, wonder, mystery. We we live kind of in this post-enlightenment, well, enlightenment, post-enlightenment era where everything just simply needs to make sense, you know. And when we look at the Trinity, we look at the deity of Christ, you know, there's a, there's a sense of mystery in who God is. Yeah. And we have to be comfortable with that. That, that if, if anything, that puts us in awe of who God is. Yeah. I mean, we got to realize we worship an infinite God. There's an infinite amount of things to learn about God, but we have a finite book. Our Bible is finite. There's a certain number of pages, a certain right. number of words. God has only revealed exactly what he has designed. Inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient. Yes. But completely point, sufficient. Yes. He's he's revealed exactly what he's wanted to reveal about himself, right. which means that there's going to be some things that just aren't spoken to in those in those mysteries. We have to be comfortable and sit in that right. and have faith and trust God. That's right. So that's good. So paradoxes, mystery. I think these are those are good categories to be thinking about as you have these kind of conversations. Whether it's you know listening to this podcast, you're having that conversation in your head, or you're, you're hanging out with a friend and you're like, "What's this Arminian thing? Or what's this Calvinism thing?" Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I just gonna bring this up. A mystery I always think about is like, why was I chosen? Mm-hmm. You know, in a previous po- podcast, we talked about election and how God yeah. chooses according to His own will. And it just baffles me. And I, it's a mystery as to why God would choose a particular individual. Yeah. And, and that's going to remain hidden. Yep. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And we talk about some emotional object, objections because there's the dynamic going on there. We talk about why me and why mm-hmm. not family and friends or whatever else have you. So a little bit of church history regarding uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. You love your church history. I love church history. We got to go back to the 17th century. It, you know, and by the way, you know, we, when you read someone like John Calvin, he's reading Augustine and he's reading his Bible, you know, so mm-hmm. we're not, you can go farther back to have this conversation, 
But where you see two sides begin to develop this Armenian and Calvinism, we're really going back to the 16th century. And in the 16th century, we have this, we have the remonstrance. Um, basically, they were pastors and theologians um, who were Dutch, who were basically like, I don't agree with Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, obviously, as the name suggests, the guy who kind of kicked this off for the remonstrance was Jacob Arminius. Let me just read this. This is from Ligonier. I found this really helpful and just trying to get some understanding of who this dude is who really, on the other side of this debate, kicked it off and really developed a theology that is contradictory to Calvinism. Jacob Arminius, so 1559 to 1609, ironically is the most famous theologian ever produced by the Dutch Reformed Church. Hey, our producer, Corey, can you confirm? We got a producer now. His name's Corey. Uh, Corey, can you confirm that Jacob Arminius is the greatest theologian ever produced by the Dutch Reformed Church? You know what? I can't find anything that disproves that. You can't find anything? that Okay, that's good. So we'll, we'll just go with it then. Thank you, producer Corey. So Arminius' um, biography is simple. He was born in the province of Holland, um, 1559 is what they're guessing. His father had died in the war against Spain, leaving his family quite poor. Authorities supported his education, recognizing his academic talents. So clearly we've got a poor guy, but people are like, he's smart. Um, he's got something. Uh, so he was among the first students at the University of Leiden. And from there, he went uh, for graduate studies in Geneva and Basel, which, by the way, is... The thick of Reformed theology is right. the thick of Calvinism. Yeah, I mean, Calvin uh, preached out of Geneva. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the leading professor in Geneva at that time was Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza. I mentioned him in our last podcast. It wasn't Calvin who solidified Calvinism or the five points of Calvinism. Actually, Calvinism was a response to Jacob Arminius in the Remonstrance. But we have this guy, Jacob Arminius, who's basically learning mm-hmm. the Bible from, a, from people who are Calvinists, who are reformed, theolo- in the, reformed in their theology, which was the dominant theme in that particular part of the world. Not theme, um, faith, faith, right? Yeah. Theology. Yep. So he, Framework. What's that? Framework. Framework, yeah. Theological framework. And so he becomes a pastor eventually, um, and he's appointed professor of theology at the University of Leiden, where he served until his death in 1609. I was thinking about this on the way here. Um, we're at your house uh, recording this, and a lot happened in the first half of the 17th century. Yeah. When you talk about synods of Dort that come out of this, you talk about the King James Version of the Bible um, beginning to de- developed in England. Right. I mean, a ton was going on in terms of the development of the Christian faith, for one. Yeah, uh, I think probably if I, in my estimation, it's like, I mean, you know, the Reformation happens, and that sort of sets a fire in people's belly essentially like kicking off all this different change. Yeah, that's right. And now it's kind of like petered out. Yeah. So one thing I want to state before moving on from church history is that we should remember that Calvinism has never summarized itself in five points, right? That's not how it started. Calvinism is summarized basically in a full confessional statements, such as we have the Heidelberg Confession, we have the Belgic Confession, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, we got the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, right? Even our own confession, which is off the 1689 at Redemptional Church. You know, it's you see the Reformed theology, you see the Calvinism in it, mm-hmm. but it's not like we got the tulip thing going on. Like, right. here's the tea. Tulip just developed as like a simple way to sort of summarize yeah, right. Calvinism. Yep, so to be very accurate, Calvinism does not have and has never had like five points uh, rather it's had five answers to five errors from Arminianism mm-hmm. so there are these so Jacob Arminius is this guy who's like questioning reformed theology and he's, he gives basically to the state here is where I disagree mm-hmm. and so we have the remonstrance at that time coming about and it was it was Jacob Arminius' followers who actually are the ones who begin to push us forward, just like it was the followers of Calvin who responded to the remonstrance. Mm-hmm. And so Calvinism, these five points, were just a response to what the remonstrance have already said. So I think it's just good history. Sure. Um, oftentimes, oftentimes in church history, we, we see theology codified in response to someone else. Right. And that goes back to the first century. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the theology of, like, the humanity and deity of Christ comes from, right. like, responses to yeah. two different heresies that crop up. Yeah, Because totally. there's, there's no point in answering a question that's Augustine, not there Arianism, yet. yeah, I mean, yeah. like, all over the place. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to answer questions that don't come up yet. That's right. So that's a little bit of the background church history. I think it's important. Maybe, I don't know. 
you think it's important? History is always important, Thank Sean. You. Good, good, Logan. All right, theological objections. There's a lot of theological objections. Um, here's just a few. The one of the objections that we hear is that Calvinism makes God the author of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you? How do you respond to that one? Yeah, and specifically because if someone's thinking back to our last podcast, this is something we mentioned at the end, which was like part of the way that the five points work is it has that underlying assumption of God's providence and um, his mm-hmm. his work in all things. Um, and so when it comes to God being the author of sin, um, I'm reminded of John Calvin's Institutes where it's mm-hmm. like, um, and he actually appeals to mystery here. Where yeah. Yes, God has sovereignly decreed all things, but he isn't actually condoning or approving of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like there's that there's a little bit of that tension there where he is not actually responsible for the evil that we co- commit, even though he has you know, destined all things from eternity past. Mm-hmm. And the way I like to think about that is like when we do evil, I go back to like that Genesis 50. Yep. When we do evil... Yes, there's that declarative will that said that it would happen, but it's not like we are like wanting to do good and then we're being manipulated and forced to doing evil against our will. We want to do evil. Hmm. We love evil and that's why we're being punished, you know, for that evil. It's not, we're not being punished because we're following the declared will of God. Right. We're being punished because we actually have the evil desires that we want to carry them out. Right. In Romans, it's at that. And, and that's important. That gets to the T of total depravity. That's our inclination, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that's good. Here's another theological objection, and this one comes up all the time. And again, we mentioned it, you know, in the last podcast, but we'll highlight it again here. You know, if God has chosen, why do missions? If God right. is elected, well, what's the point of us going out and preaching the gospel? Yeah. You know, so you get into the hyper-Calvinism. I think you mentioned this in a sermon. Can you, yep. can you, de- can you define that? Yeah, so hyper-Calvinism is an offshoot of Calvinists where they basically take the five points and they kind of twist it to the point where they're just like, okay, if there's election, irresistible grace, um, then I don't have to do anything because God will not fail to save whom he is, he, who he has elected. He right. will draw them. So then I don't have to do anything. And that is such a twisting of the scriptures because what it is is you're ignoring all the parts of scripture that tells you to go out. Hmm. I a hundred percent agree with the statement. God will not fail to save any whom he has elected, but it's ignoring the fact that God has this particular means that he has chosen to save those elect. He has chosen to save his elect people through the work of evangelism. And so trying to not evangelize and just leaning on Calvinism as a reason to be essentially lazy. Right. And disobey God's word. And disobey yeah. is is just an evil twisting of what the doctrines are, are trying to say. And you pointed this out last time in our in our previous podcast on this topic is a lot of the like huge names that you know in missions, oh, yeah. a lot reformed. of them were Calvinists. Yeah. A lot of them were reformed mm-hmm. because they see a need to obey the word of God in all things that it says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned that the two like dominant strands of Christianity – that have done well with missions historically mm-hmm. year over year, generation over generation, decade over decade. have been the reform camp and the Catholics Yeah, for different, they got in the different, different parts reasons, of the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there's a lot that goes on back there with me. Talk about colonialism, but it's a long conversation for the day. I think the fact of the matter is here in America, we've seen this push from reform camps to get out and do missions mm-hmm. and people are putting their money where their mouth is. They're actually, donating to churches who are active in missions. And we see that in one reformed church after another um, in modern church history here. So uh, the, the, the appeal that why it kind of falls deaf because the evidence shows us the contrary. Mm. Those who are reformed are actually more active. It seems um, in missions. So uh, what do you think about some biblical objections? Oh, let me get to some emotional objections and then we'll get to the Bible. Um, we talked a little bit about this when it comes to salvation, it's hard for some people to give up personal responsibility, you know, mm. like I, I said yes to Jesus, you know, you know, you kind of come up and walk the aisle and you made that declaration. How do we respond to that kind of emotional objection? Um, 
See, that's tough because it's it's hard to really come to emotional object- objections yeah. and like if you try to bring logic to emotional objections, it can it can rub people the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you don't and, want to dismiss someone who's had a a real experience with God, right? Right. And here's the thing: is I do think in in a way you do have the responsibility of of saying yes. Like you do have some responsibility. Like if correct yeah. if you hear the gospel and reject it, you are judged for that. Right. Um, going back to that idea of you know you are judged for the intentions of your heart. Um, the thing is, is like, yes, you can say like, yes, I had a responsibility, but you can't take any glory for it. Mm. And you need to know the only reason that you said yes, because of the work of the spirit in you. Yeah. You know, it's the irresistible grace, right? It's that, it's that going back to that Romans passage. We mentioned last time, man of the flesh cannot do what is pleasing to God. Yeah. The spirit had to work in your heart. It had to make your heart alive. It had to regenerate you for you to even, be able to say yes and then once right. it did you want to say yes so yeah. your whole work of salvation is is on god it's like you can take maybe minor responsibility but it's not it's not the same it's not effectual essentially like god is the effectual actor of your salvation yeah. god is the one who's ultimately 100 at work yeah although the perception could be i said yes you know i made a declaration which right. is which is again biblical you know, go yep. back to romans 10 the one who yeah. professes with repent their mouth, and believe and believes with their heart that jesus lord is saved so there there is action in which we are taken but that action is preceded by the work of the spirit mm-hmm. uh, in life to give the gift of faith to an individual to say yes and so i think that's important like the work of regeneration needs to happen Right. And then there's the response. Right. And this is different than, um, and we might get into this a little bit. This is different than the Arminian uh, view of how this uh, happens. Mm. So with, with the way we view salvation, you when the Holy Spirit comes to draw you to faith, you actually get regenerated or essentially that cold, that heart is made alive. And it puts you in a place not where not just where you are are able to say yes or no it's mm. where you absolutely will say yes right. um, because God has um, say like regenerated your heart in that moment mm. versus the Arminian uh, style which I think is prevenient grace prevenient where it's grace, like yeah. uh, where it's like when you hear the gospel it almost like partially regenerates your heart uh, which might not be language that they would like, but essentially there's almost like a partial salvation where you get to the point where you can say yes and you can say no, and you're free to choose either or. Yeah. Um, we would say like once once the Holy Spirit starts working in your heart, you will say yes because he's mm. changed your heart so much. Yeah, right. No, it's good. Here's another kind of an emotional ob- objection that I hear. Mm-hmm. And this one um, I feel deeply. It's like, you know, why did God save me and not my family? Sure. I, this is actually hit home in a, in a very real way, not necessarily with my family as much as I remember I was overseas in Afghanistan. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, I'm like one of like 10 Christians in Afghanistan, you know, mm-hmm. at, that, at that moment. And, um, this was post nine 11, um, pre pullout that recently happened. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a, a, a small U S presence at that time. And I remember I was I was in a taxi. The taxi was driving us around. We were going to up some bookstore or something like that or some cafe. And uh, I remember looking around and just it just occurred to me like all these people, ap- apart from the grace of God moving on their cold, dead hearts, mm-hmm. uh, these people are going to hell. Yeah. And not only that, generation over generation of generation of people who lived in places like Afghanistan are hell bound. And that's a sobering reality. Yeah. And that's a hard and uh, when you make it personal like that, I get I get the emotional response. Mm-hmm. Now we again ultimately we would be driven back to God's word to, to help us understand this kind mm-hmm. of call it like a theological slash emotional conflict that's going on in your soul. Yeah. But the sober the soberness of that actually <laughs> drives us drives us even more to missions. Yeah. You know, I look at that and I'm like, man, why aren't we sending our best to Afghanistan or or to wherever? Like yeah. And so there, there's different ways to approach it, but I, I get the emotional objection. But again, once going back to Holy Scriptures is yeah. always the place where we need to go. Yeah, there's always that question of like, why'd you save me and not others? And I, I accidentally mentioned this at the beginning. And it's like, I do believe that's going to be a point of mystery. God yeah. has his own reasons for why he's chosen some to be saved and not. And I think Romans 9 gives us some uh, uh, insight into that, mm-hmm. in which he, you know, it talks about making vessels. 
um, for good use and for bad use. Some vessels for glory and some vessels for wrath. Yeah. Yeah. God is glorified. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Right. I mean, exactly. That's that's in Romans, going to Micah, and then going back. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, everything is in God's is to God's glory, and when He saves someone, that's one aspect in which He gets to glorify Himself. Where He's like, you know, I save this individual. They weren't. They were running towards hell, and I picked them up and I saved them. But in the other side of things, He also gets glory in His wrath. I'm administering justice Justice, on those who have committed cosmic treason against their Creator. Stroll. I think he coined that, but it's really helpful. Cosmic treason. Yeah. We've, we've lost a sense of the justice of God mm-hmm. in American Christianity in particular, that God is just and right. you will not get away for your sin, right? for the crimes that you've, the cosmic crimes that you've committed against a holy and just God. Mm-hmm. And so it's like when you ask that question of like, why do you save some and not others? He might have chosen in his own providence and in his own glory, uh, in his own knowledge that he would glorify himself in mm-hmm. wrath for that person. And here's the thing though, we can't know. You cannot look at an individual and know like, ah, yes, you're uh, the term is reprobate. Someone that's yeah, never right, going right, to right. be saved. Hence, um, the, hence the theological term reprobation. Right. Um, and so, you know, you're made for wrath. So I'm not going to try. We can't yeah. know. Yeah. So we need to make the assumption and, and function off of the assumption that any person that we talk to could come to faith. Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to that, there's the mystery part here. Mm-hmm. We talked let out with paradox and mystery. This is where being comfortable with mystery in terms of the sovereign will of God is important. Mm-hmm. And can you be comfortable with not knowing why? That's the other thing. I mean, that's very countercultural. Yeah. You know, in America. I mean, it's a great act of faith. Absolutely. Like, cause we are creatures like, especially me, I am a person that just loves knowledge. I love yeah, learning like, and I hate when I don't know something. Yep. And it's an act of faith to just be like, God, you've, you've made your choices and I'm going to trust in you. And I know that you've made the correct ones. Yeah. Right. So how about this, man? Uh, let me, let me lay out for you the five points of Arminianism. Yeah. And I'll lay them out one at a time and then we'll kind of get into, um, Holy scripture and then just get your response from each one. Okay. Sure. So the first one would be like uh, human free will. So what's being meant by that is that uh, this states that through man is fallen, though man has fallen, he is not um, incapacitated by sinful nature and can freely choose God. His will is not restricted and enslaved by his sinful nature. So it's acknowledging a sense of depravity, but also a way to get around sin and depravity to choose God. How does that, how does that rub on you a little bit? I mean, I just, I think it's, uh, there's not a lot of scriptural support in in my opinion. Obviously, yeah, yeah. they would disagree. Yeah. Um, but you just see see passages like Ephesians that Ephesians one and I think two, just talking yeah. about how dead you were. Oh yeah, Ephesians like two a, is a great place to go. A dead that. heart doesn't have free will. Yeah. Um, you were you know dead in your trespasses and sin. I think that's Ephesians. Yeah, so Ephesians uh, two, but I think the analogy we used last time was that you're at, you're dead, you're at the mm. bottom of the ocean, incapable of, you know, getting that life raft that's thrown to you. Um, that's how dead you are. Mm. And so I, this would the human free will um, component, which which would be contradictory to total depravity, would say that you know you're in the ocean, and God throws you the life raft, and even though you're completely depraved and sinful, you actually have the ability to to grab the life raft. Mm-hmm. That that's kind of what the first point of Arminianism would hold. You have some intrinsic uh, ability to to do it. Yeah, let me let me just go to Romans eight, one of my favorite passages. So it's like this idea that we have free will and we can choose for God and not not for God. Uh, Romans eight, starting verse five. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live in accordance to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Contrasting those who are Christian and those who are yeah, not. Yeah. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the uh, on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Mm. So that's what your natural state is. You are hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot submit to God's law. Yeah. There is no freedom in that. Like you are so hostile. You are so set against God. Your very nature 
restricts you from being able to do what is pleasing him. And finishing off with verse eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Yeah. That does not sound like free will to me. Yeah. It, or to put it in a different way, um, I like the way uh, R.C. Sproul says it. It's like your will is completely free to do exactly what you desire. Yeah. Yeah. But you desire everything that is contrary to God before he comes and saves you. Yeah. That's good. Let's go to the second point of Arminianism. Just kind of work our way through that. Go for it. Uh, conditional election. Obviously, this would be contrary to unconditional election. Right. Kind of pointed that out last time. Uh, God chooses people for salvation based on his foreknowledge. Right. So God looks into the future um, and he sees who will respond to the gospel message. Uh, you, uh, go into Romans 8. At the end of Ro- Romans 8 would be, the, would be the debated passage here, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Mm-hmm. Uh, we interpret that particular text yeah. differently. Yeah, and we might get into it a little bit more later uh, as well. But the basic idea is you're, you're not using knowing uh, in the same way that the Bible uses knowing. So when we think about right. knowing something, we're thinking about like intellectual knowledge. Yeah. And so foreknowledge would be to have that knowledge before it actually happens. Right. However, oftentimes in the Bible, when it's ta- using the word knowing, it's actually talking about an intimate relationship. Hmm. Um, and an example of that, Adam knew Eve. Yeah. Now, in, in that context, it's it's talking in part about this you know, sexual relationship that Correct. they have. Yeah. It's a euphemism. Yep. It's used oftentimes in the Old Testament. Used oftentimes, but it denotes that personal intimate relationship that mm-hmm. those two individuals have. And so for God to foreknow a person means that he has that intimate loving relationship with them mm-hmm. before they've actually come into existence. Yeah. It's not God that God had a crystal ball, you know, and he's right. looking in the crystal ball and he's like, ah, Sean powers is going to respond. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even that's if not you, what we see in scripture. And even if you go to that passage in Romans eight, for, um, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's verse 29. If you take foreknowledge as to be like that, looking down the corridors of time, mm-hmm. or maybe he just has knowledge of all time yeah, yeah. At, at one point, and then he predestines. So he knows something is about to happen mm-hmm. or is going to happen in the future, and then he predestines it. Logic that doesn't, doesn't work. make sense because if he's already seen something that's taking place, it has already been destined. Right. You can't predestine that which has already been destined that you know is going to so happen. So does God know the, from be- the beginning from the end? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. But is God sovereign over the beginning in the end, you know, and everything in between? Of right. course, 100%. And so we've got to move away from this crystal ball mentality or theology of God looking into the corridors of time and then knowing that mm-hmm. Logan Kane, you know, became a Christian or, or what have you. Good. Yeah. Next one, universal atonement. I think this one gets the most, oh, I don't know, support from the Armenian camp and from yeah. those who call themselves four-point Calvinists. Uh, the position that Jesus bore the sin of everyone who ever lived. Uh, what's your response to that one? I would say that it would lead to universalism. It's not far. Uh, now, I want to be careful. Sl- slippery slope arguments, right? Yeah. Philosophically speaking, want to be careful, but let me reread that for everyone. The position that Jesus bore the sin of everyone who ever lived. Yeah. Now, quick point: Arminians, Arminians for the most part, are not universalists. Correct. That's why we want to be really charitable here. Right. I was. I'm making the argument that if you're going to take this universal atonement position, it logically and naturally leads to universalism. Right. They would disagree with that, but I would make I'd make a contrary argument. And I think we will be able to go into the texts uh, in a bit. Yeah. And this gets back into, you know, at the cross, uh, sufficient for all, efficient for the elect. Whenever mm-hmm. that last time we keep referencing our last podcast. If you didn't listen to it, I encourage you to go listen to that one. But that's a more accurate understanding of atonement. Mm-hmm. Could have Jesus died for everyone oh, all time? Right. Their sin? Yes, he could have. Did he? No. No. He did not. Because if he did die for everyone's sins, the very nature of what the cross does, which is to take on the sins of those whom he died for, right. then there's no more sins to be punished. Right. If Christ died for people who would go to hell because they would reject the gospel, that means God is going to be punishing sin twice. Hmm. Once on his son at the cross and then, and then in again in hell when he sends someone uh, for not believing. Uh, that's not just. We've talked yeah. about the justice of God. Ju- 
punishing a crime twice yeah. when it should have already been paid for by the blood of Christ is unjust. Yeah, right. Especially because it was by the blood of Christ. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, the point. A single drop is enough to cover the sins of the whole world. Right. That's what I think about. Yeah. That's no. a getting, I guess, to uh, Catholicism, isn't it? Uh, I'm not quite sure. But we'll talk about it after. Yeah, yeah, I'll mention it after. All right, number four, resistible grace. Yeah. So again, again, the remonstrants put this out, and and those who were reformed in their theology responded. So the Calvinist point, the reform point, is there is irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. God draws you. God draws a person to Himself through through the grace by the Holy Spirit. But this is resistible grace. The teaching that grace, the grace of God, can be resisted and finally beaten, uh, so as to reject the salvation of Christ response to that yeah uh (laughs) it's just like ah yes uh i can be more powerful than god the holy spirit yeah i know that's not how they would actually take it the idea is is that god would not force himself upon someone yeah um that's that's the heart about uh, you know around it it's like god's not going to force you to believe in him and i think what you see in scripture though is that when the holy spirit does his work it doesn't fail you it's not it doesn't fail in bringing you to salvation and it's not a forceful situation. I think of it like this. It's like your nature is being changed. You know, we've talked about how the man of the flesh, those who are not Christian, they are hostile to God. It's what happens at the moment. um, I mean, really faith and regeneration and all that sort of, you know, happens at the same time. But what the Mm -hmm. Holy spirit does is he changes your nature instead of being hostile to God you now want to be with him. Yeah. Like you're not being forced to go choose him against your will. You're not, you know, being kicking and screaming towards the cross. Right. Your very nature is being changed um, to be now. I want to follow Jesus. Right. It's like if you were to have a bunny who you put, you know, vegetables like a, or meat in front of a him. rabbit, rabbit, whatever. Right. Okay. Follow well, me. Where here. are you going? Follow me here. Where are you going? You have we a rabbit. Didn't, we didn't talk about this. Nope. This is off the cuff. Right. You have a rabbit and yeah. he's he's starving. And rabbits are herbivores. Yeah. So if you put vegetables or meat or meat in front of him. He's going to eat the vegetables. He's going to eat the vegetables because that's his nature. Yeah. God can change the rabbit's nature to now where he will freely choose the meat. His, he's not being forced to do anything. Yeah. His nature is just being changed in such a way that now he ch- freely chooses what was previously the yeah. opposite. It's a, it's a 100% complete change that yeah. God does. So before, by our nature, we hated God. Yep. He changes your nature, and now you choose to love God. Yeah, that's good. So the irresistible grace of God ultimately wins the day. And the way it wins the day is that there's a regeneration um, that takes place. And the regeneration changes your nature. Yeah. So sum it up that like that. Good. Uh, last point again of the five points of Arminianism, as it were, the fall from grace, mm-hmm. uh, the teaching that a person can fall from grace and lose their salvation. And I think it's this one of all the points that has the most anecdotal responses. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, sadly, you know, pastors who preached the gospel for years who've walked away from from Orthodox Christianity. Uh, we know family members and friends who grow up in the church, profess faith, they get baptized, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, and then they walk away from from the faith. And the question becomes: Is is that possible? Right. And this is the, the, is contrary to the preservation or perseverance of the saints, right? That Calvinism would hold. Um, yeah. But so, can I walk away? Can I? Do I have the ability, Logan, to walk away from the Christian faith? Um, in a sense, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, what do you mean by that? Because this gets into apostasy and things like that. Right. So it is my belief that there are people within the church who think they are Christians, call themselves Christians, but were not actually ever fully regenerated. Certainly. Um, essentially what happens is a lot of people can join the church, um, either cause they grew up in the church or they, um, like the benefits of the church. Right. But when they sh- you know fall away, we see that they were never part of the church, not truly. Yeah. And the reason I get, uh, I get from that. And I mentioned this in the previous podcast as well. Whoops is um first john two nineteen that says they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us yeah thank you um that just idea of like those who are true christians they will 
preserved. They will be preserved by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And those who fall away, they've just shown themselves that they never were part of the church, not the true church. True church. And so what we see within the local churches, we do have a bod- uh, constitute of believers, right? Mm-hmm. But we also realize within that we have those who think they believe, but ultimately do not believe because mm-hmm. they haven't gone through the process of regeneration. And so when that faith oftentimes gets tested, right? When that faith gets tested, um, you fall away. Right. You know, because when you get tested, you, you really see is the grace of God at work in your life. Right. Do you have the peace of Christ? And you see that in um, Jesus' parable of the seeds being cast upon the mm-hmm. ground. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Only one. one particular seed that was placed in the good soil actually perseveres. Yeah. There's a specific seed that has a false faith, faith that is shallow and that when tribulation comes, it dries up and dies. Yeah. So when I think about this, again, this is also anecdotal. We have folks mm-hmm. who say, grow up in the church, they walk away, they come back, mm-hmm. and they actually experience saving faith. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so what we see is we live in a world, and we have churches of imperfect people, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the grace of God that, that brings about the fruit of a person's life. Mm-hmm. And we see that year over year um, in someone's life. So the question becomes, who's a Christian, who's not? You'll know them by their fruit. Yeah. You know, you, you'll know them as, have they, as they conform into the image of, of yeah. their Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And you just have to be comfortable with what we call the invisible sh- church and the visible church. Correct. The visible church is the people you see on Sunday. Yeah. Not all of them are part of the invisible true church. Right. Only God knows. And, and like I mentioned this briefly, but oftentimes we see the true church, the invisible church. Who's in that, you know, true church when faith is tested, when you go through the fire of life, mm-hmm. you know, it, when you go through the cancer, when you go, when your spouse unjustly leaves you and walks away, what is faith present mm-hmm. to get you through those moments? Do you rely on Jesus in those moments or do you go flee to um, therapeutics from the world, for example, sure. or answers from the world? Mm-hmm. Um, where do you go? And, and, and again, I maintain it's through that testing, through that fire that we read about in First Peter, where we see the true church mm-hmm. when you get out of the fire. Right. right. You see who who walked away and who said, yes, God has my good in mind, even though this is really hard. Yeah. Um, so that's the way I've kind of thought about the preservation of saints and all the anecdotal stuff that does exist. And that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. You know, it is heartbreaking when, A, if you're, you're in the church and you've been walking side by side with someone for years and all of a sudden they're like deuces. I'm out mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And it might not be because they were tested by fire. It could have been intellectual. It could have been hanging up with the wrong crowd. There's, there's various reasons for sure, but it, it is heartbreaking. And so we want to, yeah. we want to approach it with an immense amount of sensitivity, but also honesty. Mm-hmm. Like what, what does scripture say about this? Yeah. And then, you know, when if someone were to walk away from a church, man, that's the mission field. How do how we show the grace, love, and mercy of Christ to those who never knew Christ to begin sure. with? I mean, we want to go after that. Um, we we have a great opportunity um, to to help others see, no, and, and to pray. Hey, I'm gonna pray for you every day mm-hmm. that you that God would move upon your cold dead heart. All right, let's get into some biblical stuff. Yeah, shall we? Yeah. So we've done a like a nice overview of what they believe. Now, yeah. where is their belief rooted in Scripture? Because we want to be fair, like we have scriptural texts that we go to to support our yep, ideas, absolutely, and they do as well, and that needs to be answered. Um, so, yeah, and, kick, kick us out here. Yeah. Um, so for I'm thinking the way I work this out was I went to like each of our points: total depravity, unconditional election, yep. limited atonement, so on and so forth. And I thought about their points yeah. and what text they might go to. Um, to sort of uh, rebut rebut and support their points. For total depravity, uh, and I could be wrong, if you have a good text that you think is against total depravity, I would love to see it. Totally. I think think of all the five points of Tulip, Calvinism, whatever, that's Mm. certainly the strongest, biblically speaking, in terms of like if you got got scales and you're weighting things Mm -hmm. appropriately. Like I, I don't know where you'd go to come to an Armenian conclusion 
that there's this human free will and yeah and again uh, uh, with classical armenians they yeah. actually do hold to total depravity it's, it's absolutely evolved yeah it yeah what's what was considered classical armenianism versus what a lot of people are now it, it is certainly changed yeah and when i said human free will i meant as connected to uh to you know, total depravity what's right. going on there I yep. can see someone here and that be like, you don't believe we just talked about that at the beginning and you know, you're yeah, contradicting yeah, yeah, yeah. yourself. Yada, yada. No, no, no. Yep. Um, so we already talked about like, yes, if you have total depravity eliminates free will and, or how could God hold us accountable for a sin? So we already talked about those objections a little bit. And there's a lot of honest, uh, not honest, but more historic or orthodox Armenianism, if you want to say it like that, mm-hmm. who, like you said, hold to that traditional total depravity. Yep. You know, perspective. And then when it comes to the gospel, what they, what they believe is it basically just creates an opportunity for the de- totally depraved to then respond to the gospel right, right. rather than actually being effectual. Right. Um, so just wanted to lay those cards out there. Yeah. Um, I wish I could find the Calvin quote on, on how God can ordain things and yet keep us responsible. He appeals to mystery and I will too, but it is such a good one. Are you going to use the power of the internet? Yeah, I'll look it up. Go ahead. Continue. Cool. So unconditional election. So of course there's this conditional election. We mentioned these before. Um, They usually rely on foreknowledge, that idea of foreknowledge. So in first Peter one verses one through two, it says to those who are elect exiles of the uh, dispense uh, dispersion of uh, Pontus, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Thanks for the help. You're I suck with the names. <laughs> According to what the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for uh, the sprinkling of his blood. So this idea is... Those who are elect exiles, they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Right. So they're trying to uh, connect that foreknowledge with the elect. So God, the idea of being God looking through time. Yeah, we've talked about Or seen all time. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I would still argue that the foreknowledge there is either like foreknowing in the sense of that intimate relationship Mm -hmm. that he has with his people and not actually seeing, you know, through time. Yeah, it's a foreknowledge that's connected to the sovereignty of God, foreknowledge that something has been already done. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way to think about foreknowledge, um, not in the way that we've been trying to describe it with the crystal ball or looking down the quarters. Right. Time. Yep. And then, of course, there was the Romans 8, 29, 30 that we went through. And yep. another one that gets used oftentimes is 1 Timothy 2, 4, which says, speaking of God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the idea is, is how can God desire all people to be saved if he only elects a few? Yeah, and this goes to the uh, John 3.16 passage, mm-hmm. for God's love the world, world that he gave his own coming son. Up. Yeah, yeah. It, the way to think about that is is we have moments in scripture where it's clear that there's a there's a thrust of, uh, of a totality in view. Mm-hmm. But that, that does not negate the fact that God has only elected a few. Right. And so when I get to John three sixteen, for example, for God so loved the world. Well, yeah, he loved the world because he, he created the world. You know, it was good. Okay. When you go back to Genesis. All right. So we're going to have a little bit different of an interpretation, I think. Yeah, go on for this it. One. So with, uh, specifically with the uh, first Timothy two, four passage, if you look prior to it, it speaks about like having prayer and supplication mm, yeah, yeah. for Kings and, and all this, um, Oh, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I'm so bad. But the idea is, is when he's talking about all people, he's not talking about every single individual in the world. He's talking about all kinds of people. Right, right, right. So it's, it's the idea of God did not desire just for the Jews to become saved. Jews and Gentiles. It's Jews and Gentiles. It's the rich and the poor. Right. God wants all kinds of people to be brought to the knowledge of the truth. And and some people look at the Greek right there and that's the way they would interpret it. All kinds, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's an absolutely appropriate way to interpret that passage. Um, And so that's, that's how we, how we quote unquote deal with uh, all kinds of people. Yeah. I mean, so both of our perspectives are true Mm -hmm. because I was, you know, looking at John three 16, you were looking at, this passage in Timothy, um, God did love the world that he mm. created and he has saved those that he elected. You know? Yeah. At the same time, yeah. all kinds of people are part of that. Yeah. In the Calvinist and reformed circles, there's a thing called common grace. Mm-hmm. It's that just common love that God has on all people Yeah, the, that he, you know, brings, you know, 
pours rain on both the just and the unjust. Yep. The idea that God has the absolute right to take your life immediately upon when you sin, but he chooses not to. That's a form of common grace. I mean, common mercy. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, totally. And that's a good point because we have common grace. We have a common love that God has for God's mm-hmm. love the world. We, when we get into salvific love, that's very particular. Sure. That's a, that's, a, that's a love that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so both are true at the same time. That's not even a paradox. That's just what mm-hmm. we see plainly in Scripture. Yeah. And so then going on to limited atonement, where they would argue unlimited atonement, um, some texts that they use in support right. of unlimited is the John 3.16, 3, for yeah. God so loved the world that he gave his only we son. We just talked about that, so we can move on. First uh, John 2.2, 2, uh, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only uh, ours, but for also for the sins of the whole world. Um, John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then first Timothy two, five through six for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given to at the proper time. Yeah. And again, this is probably the strongest of, of the five. Yeah. Because you got to contend with all in world. We've kind of talked about that already. Mm-hmm. I don't think my point changes by looking at these texts. No. Like all kinds of people yeah. are saved. Yeah. We, and we talk it's like that all kinds. All, like we talk like that all the time in American English, right? Yeah. Now, an objection to that is like, okay, but when does world not mean every single individual? And that's actually a really easy answer. Okay. Um, so in, again, back to Genesis. Um, it talks about people going to Egypt uh, during the famine because yeah, yeah. Joseph had, you know, been given a vision right. or interpretation of Pharaoh's vision to store up food. Right. And it says that all the world came to yeah, Egypt. Yeah, seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. Yeah. Clearly, it's not meant to actually mean every single individual in the world Coming came to, to Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, it's a crowded There's, country all of a sudden. Yeah, there'd be Native Americans in the United States that couldn't make it. So like so we use, like I was just going to say, like we do this in English all the time. Like Logan, do you love your community? Yeah. Like, but do evil people exist in our community? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like we're, it's the same type of idea. Like we can make these sweeping general statements where at the same time we can get very specific underneath those general statements. Right. Or there's a, I think a passage, passage in acts or maybe somewhere else um, where it talks about like Paul preached the gospel to all the world. Yeah. Well, we know his travels. He did not go all around the world. Again, back to the book of Esther, which we're in right now. Like we have these guys, King Eshuerus, Mordecai, Esther, Haman, and what they knew the entire world was the Persian empire. Right. Like that's, that's all they knew that that was the entire world to them. Yeah. So I think it is a a hermeneutical mistake. It's an interpretation mistake to look at the term world in our Bible and just assume that it means every single individual on the planet. Right. Because oftentimes it does not. It's usually all kinds of people or just speaking about a community in general and not actual individuals. Yeah, exactly. So that's good. Anything else on the limited atonement before we move to the next one? But I, I think we've summed that up pretty good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. All right. Irresistible grace. Go ahead. Um, so for irresistible grace, um, again, people would usually say that that violates human free will. Um, and also, like, how can you have a true relationship with God based off of love if it was forced in, if you're forced into that relationship? Already talked about that a little bit. It's not that you're being forced. It's that your very nature is being changed. Hmm. Uh, some scriptural support that they would use for resistible grace is uh, John 12, 32. And I, when I lifted up uh, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Again, that idea, oh, if he's drawing every single individual to himself and there's some people that are not going to believe, clearly then the grace of God is resistible. Mm. Again, this just goes back into our idea that all does not mean every single individual. It's all kinds. It's all different people. It's the fact that God's plan for salvation is for Chinese people, Americans, you know, French. And I'll add this. um, If you're listening and you're like, you have some Armenian leanings and theologies and we're, we're not making good arguments from your perspective. Let us know. What what is your response to our response to Arminianism? Yeah. Yeah, it would be good because if we have that, maybe we can write a blog post in, in response to that. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if we do another 
podcast part, part no, three. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, we do uh, blog, blog posts at cornfieldtheology.com. Yeah, but we, so if there's specific objections, just go ahead and send us a note um, mm-hmm. and go ahead and be specific about what about this text, you know? Right. You know, I heard this from my Bible class or I heard this from my pastor or whatever else have you. So, but yeah, uh, so irresistible grace. Now, last point, um, preservation or perseverance of the saints. Right. So the, uh, the major text, and I want to hear more your opinion on this because sure. I've been talking a bit. This is actually a text I struggle with the most because um, with limited atonement, I'm actually rock solid on that one. That's yep. actually the one I struggle with the least. Yep. Um, but with preservation of the saints, you have Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And this would be the, the text. The text to argue that those uh, people of the faith can fall away. For it is impossible... Uh, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit yep. and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in their own harm and holding him up in contempt. So there's, two, contempt. there's two things going on here. Um, first, can someone grow up in a church and have a sense of who God is growing up in a church okay. and then fall away? Like say the word enlightened, right? Mm-hmm. You have a taste. You don't have the full meal, but you have a taste of who God is. Uh, even a knowledge, right? A sure. knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, we've talked about former pastors who've preached the gospel week over week and then mm usually because of sin, they walk away their mm-hmm. own sin, but I digress. And, um, did they get a taste? Absolutely. I think the other thing that we have to reconcile here is verse six and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucified. Once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. You know, if someone's coming back, all of a sudden it's like, did Jesus die for me again? Well, no, he didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Catholics use this actually, when it comes to the mass and the Eucharist. Sure. It's a representation of the sacrifice. Right. The priest becomes another Christ. Right. And then Christ died over mm. and over and over and over and over and over, which we would reject out of hand. So how do I interpret this passage? Well, do I interpret it as someone could have a taste of who God is? You grew up in the church and you have a good understanding? 100%. Um, can that person not be a Christian and then walk away? 100%. Now, can that person come back to the Lord? Well, if you go to places like Romans, God can get people over and mm-hmm. they're not coming back. And we look at this particular text and we see why. Yeah. Um, God gave them over to their lusts. You know, just read Romans 1, 18 to 25. Mm-hmm. And so there is a sense that God does do that. Uh, have at it. You want to continue in sin? This is you. This is on you. Um, and so we, we, get a, we get a better understanding of, of what Hebrews says when we map it on to you know, two, two um, passages like Romans 1, 18 to 25. That'd be my initial kind of gut response. Sure. So basically, like kind of summarizing the, the reason we say that this isn't actually about Christians um, that are falling away, truly saved people, Correct. is because the, the language that is being used to describe this person person is like partial, partial mm-hmm. uh, language. You've only tasted the heavenly gifts. You shared in the Holy Spirit, but you didn't necessarily have the Holy Spirit. Right. So it's seeing those like you're getting the benefits of the church, mm-hmm. but you're not actually part of it. That's why you're able to fall away. Um, a different interpretation I've heard mm-hmm. of this text is that this text is simply just describing an impossible situation. Like the, the idea that someone could could taste the heavenly gifts and fall away is ridiculous out of hand. Yeah, let's use a sports but analogy. Maybe. I don't like that one as much. <laughs> yeah, let me use a sports analogy because we've got to have a category for apostasy. Apostasy mm-hmm. basically being the abandonment or renunciation of a religious or political belief. Um, I grew up a Vikings fan. Um, you know, just my parents, my mom's from Minnesota. And, sure. You know, my dad's from, you know, Indiana. I'm a Vikings fan because I'm from Minnesota and I don't even watch football. Well, it's like, you know, I grew up a Vikings fan because my parents are Vikings fans, right? Yeah. And then I went and watched the Vikings play in person. I got a taste of, of the football action, you know, U.S. Bank Stadium and whatever else have you. And before that was the Metrodome. Which is a way better name. Sidetrack. Metrodome is way better than U.S. Bank Stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So, you know, I see the Vikings play and they get crushed. They get crushed because they always lose. They're a horrible team in a horrible town. Disagree. Oh, I like that town, actually. But they're a horrible team. The mediocre at best. And I'm like, you know what? I'm walking away from this team. I'm done with them. Um, I never, and then I realized I never really liked them to begin with. I liked them because I grew up in this family 
who are a bunch of Viking fans. And so in a sense, I'm just like done with it. I never really liked him to begin with. I went to the game and realized this is not my jam. Deuces. And the same thing with those who grew up in the church, right? You get a taste of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you get an understanding, even a knowledge base of who God is from, from yeah. a scriptural perspective. And then you're just like, I'm gone for yeah. whatever reason. And, and I will say almost always when this happens, it's because a person finds himself in such grievous sins. They don't know how to reconcile themselves. Mm. They just like, I, I'm in sin and I don't, I don't want to be found out or I'm, I have a fear that the church is going to respond in a particular way or whatever else have you. Oftentimes that's the reason why people end up walking away. Yeah. And we use the, uh, we're using the example of someone that's growing up in the church. Yeah. Uh, just cause it's a super common example. I Correct. think it's like, Correct. I've seen, I've seen a Pew research that like 70% of, uh, kids that go into college, like lose their faith by like junior year. Yeah. Um, cause they grew up in the faith. It was never really their own, but I think it's equally as possible yeah. for you to be older to come, come to the church and decide like, ah, oh, yes, I kind of like the vibe or something like that. Yeah. And then just realize that you never really had oh, faith. Totally. You just, Absolutely. You just like, you have a crisis benefits. moment in life and then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, I need to go to, a fa- I need to get involved in a faith community or whatever. Right. And you're involved in that faith community yeah. and then you, you jet, you know, yeah. whatever else have you. you, you find out there's different, there's different circumstances in which, People yeah. come to church and they leave church. Right. So I was just trying to point out that there's more examples yeah, than no, just you're growing good. up. Yep. No, that's exactly right. So all that to say, I think on balance, and, and so on the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints, the reason why I can't get behind the uh, point of fall from grace from an Armenian perspective mm-hmm. is that I have, I have trouble hanging my hat on a particular theological point using really one scripture or two. And that's what we have here. Like we've explained it from a reform perspective, but if you really want to flesh out what you believe about any particular theological mm. point, we, we really need to see the breadth of what's what Holy Scripture says about the any given theological point. Mm-hmm. And I think on balance, and this is why, you know, I'm reformed, is that you see these reformed principles, reformed theology over and over and over and over and over again. And that is not to dismiss there are not thorny texts that seem 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 to contradict, seem. Right. Um, that's there, and we got to contend with that. And then as pastors and as leaders and as theologians, we need to help our, our members and others think well about what is actually going on in this particular text. How do... I don't like the word reconciling because that means you're trying to make this intentional attempt to make it fit like square peg and, and round hole. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to like pound the hammer until it goes through. I don't want to do that. Um, but I do want to contend with it. Mm-hmm. And, and on balance with, with all of scripture in view, how does that help us understand this particular one text? Right. So, uh, well, any other thoughts on uh, the other side of this coin, Logan? No, I just want to, again, encourage people that if you do have objections or while you were listening to us, you like came up with an objection, send it our way because we like to think about theology. Hey, producer Corey, yes, sir. Uh, could you just make sure that when you get emails about objections to Calvinism, you forward them on to Logan for us? Roger that. Thanks. Thanks, producer Corey. He's You're ridiculous. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he, he sure he says that to me all the time. You are bothering guests in my house. Hey, it's producer Corey. He, oh, okay. He's honorary producer for one day. Right? Yeah, just this podcast. Just this one. Yeah, just this one. Well, I mean, next time he comes back and producer Corey be back and play, we'll even have him write the script for us. Ooh. Put him into producer action. Yeah. We'll even let him pick the topic, which would probably be like, I don't know. What would producer Corey, what would you have us do a topic? What would it be? Here you go. Take the mic. How about uh, how about uh, home church? What does that look like? What's the history of that? Or small groups? Home um, church movement. Just just uh, looking forward to the future when, um, possibly, if being considered a Christian is is taboo yeah. and against the law, or what would be the, called the, the not law. the federal law, not right? The law right, not yeah. not the the law of God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, we can um, look at places already around the world, like look to China. And right. how they're doing it, the home church, because you have the state church there, which you need the stamp of approval from the communist government, but then you have the underground church. Right, and and you know if if it's approved by the state, it's probably very watered down and not and not you know accurate. Right, or, it's limited. They're they're putting limitations on what you can and cannot say. Right, which is which is another interesting topic. So, for example, we can talk about China, but we can look look at church history of how this is done. When you go to let's get back to the 16th century, right? And the gospel comes to England. And all of a sudden, we're writing the Bible in English for the English people. 
Well, what we have in there is that they took out any confrontation between the state and the church because the state was the church. And so they had, they had to think, well, okay, what does that mean for us as Christians? And so we see an emergence of kind of not an underground church, but we have the Puritans all of a sudden that are bubbling in England. And they're, they're there functionally, the house church in England at that time. They're the, they're the outcasts. So we see this all throughout church history. We see it today. And I think in America, it's coming sooner than later. That's another podcast, isn't it? Man, you and producer Corey are pessimistic about the future. What are you, post-mill? Uh, no, I'm on-mill. Okay. I'm also pessimistic yeah, exactly. about the future. We're just saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Oh, man. Post-mill. Nah, church is going to get better. Amil, it's going to get way worse. Well, the question in the post-mill camp is like, what do you do with hope? And our hope is that all things will ultimately be reconciled through Christ at his Mm. second advent. Until that day, until that day, I mean, we we live in a world of suffering and pain and sin. Like, you can't read scripture and not see that. Man. Yeah, maybe if we haven't done a podcast on that, we should. But, man, this has been a rabbit trail. Yeah, all right. Cornfield Theology is a resource engaging theology and culture. Our goal is to produce meaningful content that is biblical, relevant, and fosters ongoing discussion. You can check out our blogs with voice blogs. You can hear my voice. Maybe you don't want to hear my voice. That's cool, too. Uh, You can check out voice blogs, previous podcasts, and trusted resources at cornfieldtheology.com. Be sure to like, share, give five stars, and Apple Podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, hit the bell icon, like, and subscribe. Uh, if you want to immediately receive the latest content from cornfieldtheology.com, you go to the bottom of the page, put in your email address, and we don't spam you, but anytime something's posted on the blog, it just sends you an email of the latest post. And remember, the cross has the final word. And the cross has, uh, producer Corey said we needed to say at the very end, the cross has the final word. And I agree with that. Thanks, everyone, for listening. God bless. Peace out. Bye. Bye. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.